0: Tonight, the scripture lesson comes from Paul's letter to the early church, to the early church in Corinth. Let's share in God's good word together. Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me. A simpler life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriages. God gives the gift of the single life to some, the gift of the married life to others. And don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines your life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. On Valentine's Day, churches all over the country will be filled in cities all over America. Starry-eyed couples join hands, say vows, exchange rings, and make promises they have every intention of keeping, but with little to no preparation for doing so. They mean well. I doubt there are many instances of brides and grooms being intentionally dishonest, but in the majority of cases, these well-intentioned, beautifully adorned men and women make promises they just aren't equipped to keep. Chances are you've attended a wedding where you suspected this to be the case. You wished the couple well. But in your heart, you suspected things weren't going to turn out quite so well. You witnessed couples making commitments you suspected they weren't prepared to keep. You bought them a gift at the wedding shower, but you saved your receipt. (laughs) Andy Stanley writes that in his book um, on love and dating and marriage. And so I wanted to remind us of how we can get swept up. And these things of attraction. So if you have your sermon notes, we're going to complete our series tonight on becoming the right person. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We've been in the sermon series, The Right Person Myth. Um, This is our our third and final week of that. Uh, The first two weeks are online if you'd like to um, catch up. Um, But this is going to complete it tonight. And it's really good news that um, you you may have heard the saying that uh, it takes two to make a relationship. That's somewhat true, but it only takes one to improve the relationship. That's also true. It just it takes one to improve it. Now, it doesn't mean it's always going to work out. But the beautiful thing is God's made you in such a way where you can become a better person. You can be happier, more joyful. um, And that's good, too. And that may mean singleness. uh, That may mean reconciliation. um, That may mean a whole new life. So if you have your sermon notes out, I want to remind us where we've been very quickly. Myth number one is that once you find the right person, everything will be all right. Is that true or is that a myth? If you've been married three days, you know that's a myth, right? You can find great, wonderful people, but it doesn't mean that everything will be all right. Marriage is hard work. Myth number two, last week we looked at sexuality. And myth number two is that sexual compatibility is a strong indicator or sign that you should get married. People who have never had a sexual relationship before, they, they come and find someone together and voila! This must be them. This must be the person. What you find is that most people are way more sexually compatible with people than they are relationally compatible with people. Right? Sex is not a good indicator of how the marriage is going to go. As a matter of fact, much less sexy indicators such as agreeableness uh, or an ability to communicate or flexibility are much stronger indicators of marriages that will last um, than heat in the bedroom. That's not bad necessarily, but it's a horrible indicator of how things are going to be after 50 years of marriage. You just need more than that. And so Andy Stanley um, says uh, this, and I think it's very important. He says it's more important to become someone than to find someone. It's more important to become someone than to find someone. Will you say that with me? It is more important to become someone than to find someone. And then he asked this question, are you the person you are looking for is looking for? Are you the person that you are looking for is looking for? Are you preparing to be with that person? So what makes the right person the right person? You see, looking for the right person, that's a great idea. I mean, Jesus says in the scriptures, look, seek, knock. That's fine. As long as you don't assume that finding that right person ensures that everything will be all right. Only Jesus can come and be with us in life that is sometimes all right and sometimes difficult. Even with God himself with us, life can still be difficult, but it becomes beautiful with the Lord with us. No mortal on the planet can make things right for you. So looking for the right person is essential. It's just not enough. And there's more to a satisfying relationship than finding the right person. So let's take a a moment to look at what it might take to become the right person. What makes the right person the right person? Now, there are a number of factors, and so we're at point one here. Um, I want you to think about a list of qualities uh, for your right person. Now, this may be the person that you're married with today. Um, It may be someone that you're looking for if you're single. I would remind us that in our culture today, more than half of Americans uh, living in our country are single. And so think about your list. Go ahead and take a moment uh, what are the qualities that you really admire, want, and someone that you're going to spend time with? Whether that's your spouse, whether those are close friends. What are those sorts of values? Uh, is it beauty, intelligence, sense of humor, family, wealth, strength, faith, humility, their height? I mean, maybe you're just happy if the dude's tall. I mean, if that, that's you, that's you, but you need to know that. Um, what about their career? Do you have that kind of thing? You might even write some of those down. These are the these are the things that are really important to me for the people that I run with in my life. Now, what's amazing to me is that so many people that I know they have this list. We all have them. And you have one. You may not say it out loud, but you have one. And and what's amazing to me is people chunk their list for chemistry and physical attraction. They have a list. And then they say, wow, this person's really good looking and we're really good together. So I've forgotten my list. And then it's a lot of pain and disappointment. And so think about your list. So don't abandon your list for chemistry or physical attraction. And then there's a a little more pointed question. Think about your list for a second. How many of the above qualities that you're looking for do you possess today? Oops. You see, isn't it interesting that so often that the very things that we want and sort of even demand of our spouses or people that we're going to run with, they're not in our bag of tools. And yet we somehow expect that we'll attract or run with people that have all these things that we don't have in our life, that somehow they'll complete us. And that never happens. It just never happens. Like attracts like. And and if, if you don't have any of these qualities that you're looking for, it's very Rare that anyone who does have those qualities will be attracted to someone who has none of the qualities that they're looking for as well. Does this make sense to you? So you can actually make a big, huge, wonderful change and move in your life to become the sort of person that you're looking for is looking for. Beyond chemistry and attraction. But it's so easy to get stuck there, isn't it? Uh, Our family loves the little movie Hitch. And um, Hitch is a a sort of a a dating guru. and And he says... Uh, to this guy he's trying to help, he says, you know, you might be her last first kiss. You might be her last first kiss. That's very romantic, isn't it? And and so much starts to ride on that first kiss. But friends, at that point, all sorts of trouble comes out. So one of the things I hope that uh, we begin to understand, and it can be very frustrating to people, is that your relationship will never be any healthier than you. If you really want a wonderful relationship, then you've got to get kind of wonderful yourself, because otherwise you're dragging down the wonderful that you want. Does this make sense? So the relationship can only be as strong as its weakest link. And so if you really want a wonderful quality relationship, then there's work to be done uh, with all of us. Now the other thing that happens is that we can't change anyone but ourselves. And only with God's help, even even with that. Um, I had the most interesting thing happen to me when I was preaching at my former church. I would get up and I would preach my guts out and I would, you know, win people to Jesus. And I would would say all these things and try to say all these helpful things to the congregation. And almost every Sunday I would have uh, one of the uh, elder ladies of the church come up to me. And we have the receiving line and she would shake my hand. And then she would say this. She would say, Mark. I say, yes, ma'am. She says, that was a great sermon. I said, well, thank you so much. She said, it was exactly what my husband needed to hear. It's too bad he wasn't here. I was like, oh, no. You see, every sermon's a great sermon for someone else. Isn't it? I mean, every sermon is that sermon that your nephew should hear or your niece should hear, your spouse should hear, but it's never for you. You know, because then you would actually have to change. And so I would, I just, I was not brave enough to to let her know that. But every sermon she ever heard was great for her husband who did not attend. I hope that you understand that that this sermon is for you. It's for all of us. As we try to live into a more joyful life and healthy relationships, whatever that may look like. So, if we can only really change ourselves and work on ourselves through God's help, uh, then what does that look like? Well, sometimes it can be frustrating. I'll have people come to me and They'll start to talk to me about their wife or their in-laws or their husband. And uh, one gentleman uh, said to me one day, he says, you know, Mark, I've been talking to you about my family and my struggles for over a year. And and I'd really like some help with all these people giving me grief. And every time you just talk to me about what I'm going to do, he says, you've never once told me about what my wife needed to do or my this or that needed to do. And I said, well, that's because you can't do anything about that. You can only do about yourself in your own life. That's just the way it is. So then people want to come and they want to talk to me about their relationship problems. Right? They, They have relationship problems. Friends, couples generally don't have relationship problems. They don't. People have problems that they bring into the marriage. And then you have to deal with them. So if you weren't a very trusting person before the marriage you're still not very trusting in your marriage, and that causes you problems in your relationship. Does it make sense? If you had financial woes before you got married, and you brought them into the marriage, now you have financial problems in your marriage because you brought them in with you. Make sense? If you have pain and unresolved conflict that you bring into the marriage, well, now you have those those problems in your marriage. It's not about the relationship. It's about unresolved pain, conflict, problems that both groups bring into the marriage. And so that, that's something that we can all do something about. We can work on those very things that we have always struggled with in our life. And those of you who have been with me very long know that I'm sold out on this. We are not very creative in our sinning. Most of us are one-trick ponies. If you struggled with this when you were 12, 16, 18, 30, 40, 50, 60, that's your thing. Most people don't have this problem and then on Thursday go, Oh, I think I'm going to try this sin over here. Normally we just sort of struggle in the same areas. And so we can actually make headway on that as we give that to the Lord. And it's not our spouse, it's not our family, it's not our friends, it's not our job, it's not our church, it's not our country, it's not our president, or the senator, whoever else. It's ourselves. And when we look at that, things can get better um, bit by bit. We have problems that we bring into the relationship, and the only person you can change is you. Andy Stanley says it much more eloquently and pointed than I can. He says, fix your pets, not your partner. Right? Right? You don't fix one another. You just can't. And everybody who tries to fix your partner uh, is just really upset. And, and it's, it's bad. Every The person who's trying to get fixed doesn't like it. And the person who's trying to be the fixer doesn't like it because they're not making a lot of headway. So let's look back into first century. First of all, we just have to own this. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. And yet we look to these leaders in the church. Jesus, God himself, um, for You know, insight, we look to Paul. Um, But the other thing about Jesus' day is in the first century, there was no singles culture. There was no Jerusalem disco. Um, You know, nobody dated. You had arranged marriages, right? And so mom and dad chose who you married. Uh, That's just the way it was. And so while the New Testament says nothing of dating or courting or going out, it says a great deal about relationships in general. And so let's take a look at what the Bible says about becoming the right person. Okay? Well, first of all, we have to understand what love is. Valentine's, of course, really messes up love because it makes it all about lust uh, or desire or all sorts of things that aren't love. Uh, Jesus um, is very clear about what love does and what love is. In Matthew five, uh, forty-four, Jesus says this, I say to you, love your what? enemies and pray for those who persecute you does that sound like valentine's no that's a very different concept of love love here is a verb say that with me love is a what a verb it's something that you do it's not a feeling it's not something you feel it's something that you do it's doing the best for the other even if they're your enemy in john thirteen thirty four, 34 uh, jesus says this i give you a new commandment that you what Love one another, just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. So now it's not just that you love, but now you love in the way that Jesus loved you, gave his life for you, sacrificially washed feet, went to the cross. That's what love looks like, sacrificial love, doing the best for another. A new command, Jesus says. Now, new in the Greek uh, said meant strange or remarkable, OK, so so when his hearers would hear this, when Jesus said, I give you a new commandment, he's saying, look, I'm about to tell you something shocking, something remarkable, something new, something strange, something you're not used to. Love your enemies, love one another, do the right thing as I have loved you. This wonderful, strange and remarkable new commandment. You see, great relationships are built on good decisions, not strong emotions, Emotions can only get you so far. So again, I know I'm I'm kind of uh, going over this again and again, but it's very important. Falling in love, that's easy. Staying in love, that's hard. It requires a lot more. Did you know that your spouse will change on you? Are you aware of this? That they will have bad days. Some of them will have bad months. Some of them have had bad decades. It, I mean, that's the case. The, you know, one of the reasons that we have wedding ceremonies, uh, when, most of the time when kids, you know, are young, 20s, early 30s, and they dress up, they wear tuxes, uh, and they wear, you know, beautiful gowns, and they have their friends, and they do their hair. You know why we do that? Because that's the best it ever gets. And so it's in that moment when you look good, and you smell good, and you look, you know, you dress right. That you say, hey, God, we're committing. And you try to remember that day to get you through all the other days. Right. When you got a three year old on your hip and another one throwing up with the flu and another one on the way or um, your kids are driving and you stay up all night worrying about them or they go to college and you wonder where they are, what they do and they start to have kids and you wonder if they're going to get through the pregnancy and what their parenting is going to be like if their marriage, your children's marriage is going to make it through those hard times because you know how hard it was in your marriage and you worry for them. and, and, And then your kids have grandkids maybe and you wonder how this all plays out. See, it's a lot more than just standing up here one day. That day is supposed to influence and have witnesses that when you're having a really bad day, everybody who was at your wedding will call you and say, yes, hang in there. Hang in there. You can make it. I know it's difficult. Ephesians 5.21 gives us a little hint of how this gets done. Paul writes to the early Christians in Ephesus. He says, Submit to each other out of respect for Christ. Submit to one another out of respect for Christ. The common English Bible puts it that way. And the key here, friends, is mutual submission. Uh, The scriptures around Ephesians 5 are some of the most abused in all of the text. Christians take this and and use it horribly. um, Trying to get our spouses to do things we want them to do. Uh, Men do that to their wives and wives do that to their husbands. Uh, They say, well, you should be like this or you should be like that. You know how far that gets you? Nowhere. It's about mutual submission and that changes everything. When you submit to one another, when you want the best for one another, things start to change. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. You see, the thing is, when one of you is trying to coach or manipulate or get the other to do something, um, it starts to break down. It's, it's sort of a perversion of the golden rule. You know, it's like, do unto your spouse before they do unto you. Um, do unto others as they deserve to be done to Uh, Do unto others so you can get them to do what you want them to do, you know, so that they'll owe you a favor. Do unto others until you're ready for somebody else. I mean, it's just a mess. maybe, Maybe you've come to believe this in your marriage, that I'll do my part as long as you do yours. Does that sound familiar? Well, I'll take out the trash if you do the dishes. I'll love you to the extent that you love me. And the results are fragile at that point, aren't they? These transactional relationships, these contracts built on conditional agreements that leave both parties focused on the behavior of their partner rather than on Christ or on love or what's best for one another or even best for the relationship. You see, friends, one of the, the huge things that we have to understand is that your marriage is not a competition and it's not a contract. It's much more than that. In a marriage, you're on the same team to bless the world. To bless others. That what is good for your spouse is good for you because you're on the same team. And what's good for you should be good for your spouse because you're on the same team. Make love a verb. A new command I give you. Love one another. Serve one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. Sacrificially, no way around it. And see, here's the beautiful thing with Jesus in the mix. It's no longer I'm doing unto you as you've done to me. Now it is I'm doing unto you. As Jesus has done for me. And that changes everything. When we can love our spouses in the way that Jesus loves us, it doesn't really matter so much what our spouse is doing. We are loving our spouse. Maybe in spite of what they're doing. Because we're no longer loving contractually from the love we receive, but loving in Christ. We are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's mutual submission. And then this is true in all kinds of relationships. And I just I need to say it out loud um, because it's just so destructive. It doesn't mean that it's, it's not true, but I just want you to know how destructive it is. I know that someone is in deep weeds and in very serious trouble When I hear them blaming their spouse for all the problems in their life. I know that they more than their spouse is in trouble. The way Andy Stanley puts it is blame is lame. Blame is lame. Will you say that with me? Blame is lame. No one has ever blamed him or herself into a preferred future. I've never known anyone in my whole life. That was blaming their situation on a boss or a job or their spouse or their kids or this or that. That was happy or moving forward or anything. You see, to blame ensures that you will live your life at the mercy of anyone with a stir stick. Who can stir stuff up in your life. And some people are really good at that. And I understand that's not something we should do. We shouldn't stir other people's pots. But if you're just kind of hanging back waiting for someone to get you upset, that's a problem. You'll be miserable in your life. And and you may make other people uh, miserable around you. I and mean, we have to face it that people can push our buttons, but there are buttons, and we can choose whether or not we respond to that. When someone's words stir something inside of you, remember that it's inside you. It it's yours to be stirred, and that makes it your issue that you can deal with, that I can deal with. The scripture is very clear on this: that we are not to be easily provoked. And Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, real love, the love that Christ shows us, it never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. And then we come to these last two that I think are very important. Love doesn't fly off the handle. Now... I've talked to lots of couples over 20 years and they're, they're going to be quick to say, well, I wouldn't fly off the handle if he hadn't done this or I wouldn't have flown off the handle. if She hadn't said that or I wouldn't have flown off the handle if, you know, they hadn't brought up my past. I wouldn't have flown off the handle if it weren't for what they did. I've never known someone to use that kind of language who had any sense of joy or peace or life in them at all. It's just self-defeating. Because can you control the other person who's pushing your buttons? No. If they're going to push buttons, that's what they do. But we are to be people whose identity is not in what other people say about us. Our identity is to be where? In Christ. It's not in our marital status. It's not in our single status. It's in our status of being a child of God. So love doesn't fly off the handle. You see, isn't it true that the person you're looking for is someone who's not easily angered? Someone who's not easily provoked? Isn't that true? Any of you all looking for somebody who's just going to go whack a do at you, um, you know, at dinner tonight after church? I go. I hope I get to date them. I just love them making a scene at Chili's. It's great. No, nobody wants that, right? Once the blame game begins, nothing gets resolved. It gets us nowhere. Now you may feel justified. You may feel vindicated. But you'll be alone. And sad and hurt and angry. That blame never gets us anywhere. It doesn't lead to life. It leads to pain and to struggle. And, there, and and that's true on that side. Well, let's go to the other side. It says, love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Well, you know, keeping score of your spouse's or your family's sins is not that hard on the day one of marriage. You haven't been together that long. But if you've been married 23 years, you can get kind of a good list going. Especially if you have a good memory. My family does. And it's not that it's not true. Right? Have you heard somebody say this? Maybe you're out to dinner or maybe you're just visiting in the hall. And there's just somebody around that just can't help connect the dots for the people who are struggling. You know, the the couple where you hear one of them say, well, you know, honey, you've always had a problem with. Sweetheart, last year at this time, we had the same conversation. Don't you remember how stupid you are? That's what that means. Why do you always? Why can't you ever fun times? No, it's bad. So particularly if you grew up in a home with a record keeper, I did you're painfully aware of the negative relational dynamics that that record-keeping creates. You may have hated it, but you're not really sure how not to repeat it. It's what you know. So we have to decide not to keep record of wrongs. And the challenge for record-keepers is that they're right. In my family, we have a high value on being right. What the Scripture tells us is that the Lord values mercy over right compassion over judgment and that's supposed to be really good news for us can be hard on the record keepers but we want to be people of mercy you see it's not that what they're saying isn't true it's not about their accuracy or inaccuracy they're normally right they remember it spot-on the problem is that the damage is done rehearsing the past does nothing to alter or improve the future Besides, we all know what we did in the past. We don't need to be reminded. Any of you all here, um, you know, really dig it when your family brings up all the stupid things you did in your childhood, you know, as a teenager in college, all the things you didn't do. You know, when people come home from, uh, you know, work or vacations or whatever, and they're like, oh, didn't I ask you to do the, mm, 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 the feed the dog, take out the trash, make your bed? Da, da, da. All the kids, they love that, don't they? It was just great. See, we don't need to be fixed. We need to be loved. And you can have love with accountability. But it doesn't do us a a lick of good to have a litany of all the things we failed to do in our life brought before us. I've never met a person on this planet that didn't have some awareness of their faults and the ways that they didn't measure up. People know that they don't have to be reminded of it. They need help to get out of it. And that's who we're to be. So what else does the Bible say? Some things that are a little more positive. Well, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes to the early church in Thessalonica. He says, be thankful. Think about the person that you'd like to be with, the people that you want to run with. Rejoice, how often? Always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in how many circumstances? All of them. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's great. Be thankful. Be thankful. Not entitled. Not entitled. Can you just kind of sense the difference of that? If you're with somebody and you do something nice for them, you don't do it so that they will thank you. But when they say thank you or they write you a thank you note, how do you feel? Awesome. You feel great about that. And, and you know, you take someone out to dinner and you're leaving and you go, hey, you know, it was great being with you. And they go, yeah, I've had better. (laughs) You know what happens? You do not take them to dinner again. And they wonder, well, I'm always a one hit wonder. Because you're not thankful. Right? Be fun, hopeful, patient, and prayerful. Romans 12, 12 says that. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. A big one. Be responsible in your finances. Be responsible in your finances. Romans 13 says this. Pay to all what is due them. Pay your taxes, people. Right? Revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honors due. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Be truthful and be reconciled quickly. Paul writes this to the folks in Ephesus. So then putting away falsehood, let us, all of us, speak the truth to our neighbors. For we are members of one another. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not make room for the devil. Be made right with one another quickly. And then finally, one that most people do not think about at all, which is critical to have a fun and happy life. Rest. Rest. Most people are way overscheduled. You ever try to be really, you know, fresh and fun and happy when you've been up for 20 hours? It's brutal. You can't do it. Rest, Jesus says in Mark 6. So as an action step to prepare ourselves to become the people that the Lord wants us to be. Um. I know that I've I've asked this of us before, but I'll try it one more time here. Train yourself now, tonight, when you're having a conversation, not to have the last word. Just refuse to have the last word. Tell someone you love them. Be at peace. And regardless of what they say back, just let it be. Let the Lord God be your justifier. You know how awesome that would be if if everyone just knew that you were a person of love and peace and kindness and you allowed others to have the last word. Another great discipline in our life as we become the people God wants us to be is to choose never to hurry again. It doesn't mean you might not do something quickly, but you just that hurry has a big piece of anxiety in it. You say, I'm just not going to hurry anymore. I'm going to try to do my best to be on time where I'm supposed to be, but if I'm not, I'm not and i Happy to pay the consequence. Be at peace. And then pray that God would take control of your life. Let it be with me according to your will. And you can do this because we remember what Paul says in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. That God is for us. Paul writes this. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. God is for you. He loves you. And he's ready to do more for you than you're even ready to accept. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And the church says, amen, amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that all of your commands are covered promises, blessings to make our lives rich and wonderful, full of peace and joy, compassion and mercy. We ask that you would not only pour those things upon us, but that we would also share them with others. And as we share your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your compassion with the world, we thank you that you've created the world in such a way that more often than not, those things are shared with us as well. And we thank you, Lord, that you've taught us to love others, not as we've been loved, but how you have loved us. So we ask that you would fill us with your love and your power and your grace that comes through your Holy Spirit and your Son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father